You're listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining me again. Hope everyone enjoyed last week's episode. I, uh, it was a lot of fun. I love getting into stuff like that and getting into some high-level content with, uh, with with experts. And tonight's going to be no exception. I, I have a great guest on tonight. I have Dr. Ann Fallon, and she is an entomologist and an expert on springtails. And that's going to be the focus of tonight's discussion. And I, I know a lot of us use springtails as cleanup crews and sometimes as secondary feeders in our vivariums. And uh, Anne's going to be our guest tonight, and she's going to walk us through their life cycles and uh, you know how to how she takes care of them in the lab and what they are, and all sorts of fun stuff. So uh, we're going to get into that in a few minutes. But of course, I want to thank everyone for the nice five star reviews on Apple Podcasts. It's a great way to get the show out there and get exposure. It's also the easiest way to show me that you support the show. Uh, Another option out there, if you want to support the show, is, of course, the Patreon page. If you're interested in becoming a patron, $5 tier will get you a shout-out at the beginning of an upcoming episode, and it also helps you support the show, helps me keep the lights on in the studio. So other than that, uh, I want to get into it tonight. I I want to welcome Ann to the show, and, and welcome. How are you doing tonight? Thanks for uh, Thanks for coming on. Hi, um, I'm doing great. Um, hanging out in my lab, doing some uh, science here. Yeah, I want to thank you so much for making the time. I know it's it's got to be a busy time of year with exams and whatnot. Well, and why don't you start off with uh, a little bit of background? Why don't you tell us tell us your story? What led you towards a career in science, and how did you end up where you are today? Oh wow! Um, so I I grew up in rural Connecticut. Um, small town, no neighbors till I was about five. And uh, the first kids that moved in were, um, um, they had a grandfather who was a naturalist. And uh, I started chasing butterflies and and studying caterpillars and I kind of got hooked on metamorphosis and and, uh, decided when I was about seven, I was going to spend my whole life studying bugs. So uh, that's what I do. Um, I study mosquitoes partly because they, uh, they're they important vectors of diseases in humans. And we've got lots of problems with malaria and Zika virus and dengue and things like that. So um, my main focus is mosquitoes, but um, columbula uniquely have a, a bacteria that's shared with mosquitoes, and um, it, it makes the columbula parthenogenetic, and it makes the mosquitoes unable to breed. So I'm kind of interested in the genetics of this um, little bacterium that lives inside these bugs. That is really, really fascinating. I mean, I again, I'm not an expert by any means. I didn't even know that springtails could be parthenogenetic. Is that everything is parthenogenetic or just ones in the, um, in the columbula? Um, so there's about 7,000 or so species of columbula and most of them are sexual, you know, males and females, but this particular one, um, is only female. And because of this bacterial infection, it can regenerate a diploid organism when it's making eggs. So instead of needing to have a male to give it sperm, it just fuses two of the 
primitive egg cells or the precursor egg cells together and regenerates a diploid organism. And the bacteria make that happen. We don't know why, but that's, that's uh, what it does. And in mosquitoes, the same bacteria um, will kill the embryo if the male is infected and the female isn't. Is this something that would happen in a wild-type setting, or is this something that was just discovered in a lab? So this was discovered about 100 years ago. And in the 1960s, they figured out that this, this mating incompatibility in mosquitoes could be used to replace a vector population with a related but non-vector population thereby reducing disease transmission. So discovered in the 20s, by the 60s, we kind of had a handle on it was a useful bacteria. And in the 1990s, we discovered that this bacteria is in about 40% of all the insects that we know of. So it's a pandemic in insects. (laughs) Definitely. I've I've heard that mosquitoes are considered the most deadly organism on the planet in terms of, of human deaths. I mean, I know the show's kind of about springtails, but since you do so much work with, with mosquitoes, what implications does this type of research have on mosquito control in terms of, of, of managing them? So you can, um, if you can imagine injecting these bacteria into a mosquito egg, and growing them up to make mosquitoes, make full-grown mosquitoes, and release those mosquitoes into a a place where disease is being transmitted, it turns out that those artificially injected mosquitoes are less able to, um, to maintain the pathogen. So they're less able to transmit a virus, less able to transmit malaria. Um, so they're just, they're just not good vectors. And we don't really know why. We think it might have something to do with the immune response of the mosquito to the bacteria. Now, is this, I know that there's many different species of, of uh, mosquito. Is this targeted as, as a specific species of mosquito or is this all mosquitoes? Um, it's used, well, it, it depends on how easy it is to inject a mosquito egg. So the, the most important vector is Aedes aegypti, which came over um, during the slave trade in the um, 1500s. And that mosquito has spread throughout the world pretty much. It's the main vector of dengue virus and Zika virus. So they're actually using these injected mosquitoes to control dengue in Brazil. And they were using it on Zika, but Zika disappeared by itself. So um, dengue is the main reason why we're studying um, this particular bacteria. That's fascinating. What about other, I mean, I know that you and I are both in the United States, and I know here we don't get many of the tropical diseases that, that affect other parts of the world. What about some of the diseases that are more present in the uh, in the United States? Like, um, I'm trying to think of a good one, for example. 
Um, I, oh, I know West Nile has kind of made a bit of a, a presence, I think maybe about a couple of decades ago. Are there any implications for that here in the U.S. with, um, with some of the diseases that aren't necessarily uh, endemic here? Uh, there will be eventually. Um, one of the big problems with um, controlling mosquitoes is getting that species of mosquito to um, live in a laboratory in a small cage. So mosquitoes in nature like to make a swarm. They like to aggregate over some marker. It could be a, a hill or a bush or something. And all the males sort of hang out in a swarm. The females fly into the swarm and mate with the males. So the trick is to get that mating to happen in a small cage. And that is only possible with a relatively small number of mosquitoes. So like our big pest in, in Minnesota, Aedes vexans, uh, you can't mate it in a laboratory. You, you have to collect it outside in the woods. So it's a little bit harder to work with than um, some of the standard um, lab mosquitoes like Aedes aegypti and Culex pipiens, some of those others. That's fascinating. It's it's funny. You wouldn't think about something as a mosquito being so, so complex in its needs. What about um? Well, while we're on the subject of 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 labs, obviously you keep springtails in your lab. How are you keeping them in the lab situation? And by that I mean, well, you know what? I'll tell you what. Before we get into that, I I want to. I have my outline. I want to stay on track. Um. Give us an idea of what a springtail is. Can you run us through what their biology is and how their life cycle goes? Yeah. So um, springtails used to be considered insects. So they have six legs. But um, the more technical people decided that because their their mouth parts are sort of internal, they're not really insects. So they're kind of a, uh, an ancestor. You might think of them as an ancestor of the true insects for some technical details. So they, they don't have wings. Um, they never um, have a pupil stage. They're very simple insects that just, um, they have an egg, they hatch out, they go through several stages separated by a molt but they never stop molting. And most insects will stop molting, make a cocoon and get wings in the end. But these columbula are kind of arrested in that primitive state. So when they get to a certain size, they start laying eggs. And then they alternate between a molt without eggs and then a molt where they lay eggs and a molt without eggs, and they keep going on like that for months. So they live a long time. They live several months to a year. And um, they have this kind of weird um, cycle where they never stop molting. What's the reason behind the constant molting? I mean, I I know many insects, like for, like for example, like mantises, they'll, they'll go through multiple instars. They, they molt each time, and each time they grow obviously springtails molt as often as they do. They don't get to be gigantic. Why would they 
continuously molt like that throughout their life cycle? That's a good question. Um, people are still arguing about what molting is in insects. So one theory that seems to be popular right now is that the larval insect or the immature insect is really an embryo that eats. So if you think of a caterpillar, it hatches out of an egg and it molts several times and then spins a cocoon. So all of those intermediate stages before the cocoon are now thought as an, an embryonic form that eats, which allows it to accumulate mass and get big. Then the pupil stage where in the cocoon is where the real development occurs and you end up with an insect that has wings. So once an insect has wings, it never molts again. That's an adult insect. The columbula don't really do the full cycle. They never make a cocoon and they never make wings, but they kind of copy some of these, uh, these primitive molting and reproduction um, patterns of development. What about reproduction in the species that reproduce sexually? Is there any kind of mating behavior? Is there any cues? Are they are they seasonal? I mean, how, like, how are they? How would they breed in a in a captive, like a laboratory setting? What do they need? Okay, um, I don't know of any labs that maintain the sexual columbula. There probably are some, but I don't know of them. So in the sexual forms, um, um, the male makes a little package of sperm and he, he puts it on a strand of silk. And then he dances with the female and puts her in contact with that little bubble of sperm. And she picks it up and fertilizes her eggs. My columbula never do that because they don't have males. They're, they're only females. So this bacteria that, that was found in mosquitoes, when it's in other insects, like in columbula or in some wasps, it eliminates the male. And the females go on reproducing parthenogenetically um, without any males ever being produced. It's kind of hard to wrap your head around this, but no, yeah, no, I, 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 I get, I get what you're going at. And that's, that's, I, I just had a question come up. Uh, what about the, the genetic diversity? And I'll, I'll, I'll put this into context. The, many of us in, in the, especially in the dart frog hobby and the vivarium hobby in general, a lot of us maintain our own cultures of springtails at home. And they always just seem to reproduce. In fact, I didn't know that they were actually parthogen uh, parthogenetic. I always wondered how long you could keep these things reproducing without adding any new material or any new any new bloodlines or genetics or whatever you want to call it before they reached some sort of genetic bottleneck and there was some sort of an issues. Are they like clones of each other? Is that what's going yes. on? Yes. Okay. 
Yes, they're clones, and I've maintained them for years without any loss of um, viability. In fact, if you try, in most insects, if you try to re, uh, eliminate these bacteria with antibiotics, the insect is just fine. It, it reproduces normally. Everything is, is good. But with these columbula, you can't get rid of the bacteria. So if you try to do that, you put them in antibiotics, they will just stop reproducing. And they'll wait until you take the antibiotics away. And then they just pick up as normal. So it looks like the bacteria in parthenogenetic species are entering this so-called persister state. It's it's not a um, it's not a genetic thing. It's a, a response to um, a bad environment. Antibiotics kill the bacteria. That's a bad environment for these organisms. Their bacteria go into a, a, an arrested state, and they just wait until things get better. So you can keep columbula on antibiotics for months and then remove the antibiotics. They pick up where they left off, and you can't get rid of the bacteria. In other insects, you can get rid of the bacteria, and the insects are fine. So the evolution of whatever is going on in columbula is much more what could you say, more intense. It's more, it's harder for humans to break that connection between the bacteria, the columbula, and the reproduction. Just out of curiosity, because the, the first thing that comes to mind, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I, I have a feeling I might be wrong. Uh, the first thing that comes to mind when I think about it is uh, antibiotic-resistant infections in, in humans and in mammals and in, even in other species like amphibians and reptiles, even though from what I understand that's kind of rare. Is this bacteria resistant to all antibiotics? Well, not really resistant in the conventional sense, but is this any type of antibiotic that will kind of put this into a torpor, or is there any that it is actually sensitive to? Okay. It's a bacteria that is an obligate, intracellular organism. So if you think of E. coli, you can grow it in a test tube, right? You can grow it in the in a beaker or in the laboratory. The Wolbachia is the bacteria I study. Wolbachia needs to be inside of an insect cell. And during its evolution, it lost about 75% of the genes that occur in E. coli. So it can't make amino acids. It needs to be inside of an insect cell to get those nutrients that it has lost the ability to make. And the way it propagates itself in nature is to get into the insect reproductive system the eggs and the sperm, the insect mates, it produces offspring. The offspring are infected with the bacteria and the bacteria survive in nature. So they need the bacteria to persist. 
and they do it by messing with the reproduction of the insect. So if you're an insect in a population where there's infected ones and uninfected ones, the infected ones will outcompete the uninfected ones. That's how we can control disease pop populations of disease vectors. By infecting the non-vectors, we can outcompete the vectors. And as a result, we reduce transmission of disease. It's amazing. It's it's so I guess ironic that the introduction of I mean not that it's technically a disease, but one infection helps mitigate another infection. That that's incredible. Yeah, and that was the big problem in the 60s when the World Health Organization did the study. It was done in Burma, which is um, Myanmar now. Um, the people, the native people there were not properly told what was happening. So they misunderstood the experiment and they thought that Europeans were releasing mosquitoes, which is a bad thing. And even though the experiment worked, the World Health Organization had to discontinue the experiment because people were upset about foreigners coming in and releasing mosquitoes. <laughs> so, yeah. It must have been a public relations disaster, I guess. A PR nightmare, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can't blame anyone for that. No one likes mosquitoes. Right. <laughs> How are you keeping your springtails in the lab? I'm, I'm just curious because many of us in, in the hobby, we have different methods. Uh, some of us keep them on charcoal. Some of us keep them on, uh, a, it's, I think it's clay. Um, do you have any particular preference in terms of how you keep them in the lab? So I think of them as microorganisms, like bacteria. They're all genetically the same. And instead of using soil, artificial soil, or charcoal, or plaster Paris, I grow them in Petri dishes on agar. So I pretend I'm growing E. coli, right? I, I make a medium. I boil up um, a quart of water with 15 grams of agar. And I throw in a little charcoal just to make it black. And then I pour these these uh, petri dishes about four inch diameter dishes and i sprinkle yeast powder on top of that and then i just i i have a little gadget that i use to pick up the calembola i float them on water and i use a a, a little aspirator to actually pick up calembola and spread them onto a new plate so about every three weeks, I, I split my colony. So it grows on the plate from maybe 100 calembola to thousands of calembola. In three weeks, I split them out and just continually do that um, over the years, and they do just fine. So I treat them like microorganisms. I, I grow them on petri dishes. So. You know, you can put them in a terrarium. And in fact, I got my colony from a, a natural occurring. I, I was growing some frogs and I noticed them in the in the terrarium and I just picked them out and started growing them in the laboratory. But, um, you know, when I have lots of extras, I throw them in the terrarium or keep them at home. But 
I'm doing experiments with them to try to figure out some of their, um, their biology. So I can get thousands. I get thousands of these, these columbula. And I don't count them. I stain them for protein. You know, people will, will say, well, how do you get how many live and how many die? And they count them. But that's, that's a lot of work. So I, I extract them with hexane to get the, the lipid out of the cuticle and stain them with a protein dye and just measure the, the stain instead of counting. You'd mentioned plaster of Paris, and I know in, in, in our correspondence, you, you mentioned something about toxicology studies. Uh, why would you keep them on plaster, uh, plaster of Paris, and what's, um, what's their role in the toxicology studies? Well, the toxicologists would embed into, into the plaster, okay? So you're looking at, say, heavy metals or um, soil that's contaminated, um, you either make a plaster Paris a mix with the chemical inside the plaster, or you make an artificial soil mix, and you put in a certain number of columbula, and the columbula are going to reproduce, they're going to lay eggs, the eggs will hatch, and you get more columbula. At the end of a month, they count how many columbula they have. So with no toxin, you get some control value, which is 100%. And with the samples that are either uh, treated soil or whatever, you're going to get a lower percentage of reproduction. And you basically compare those two values and determine uh, the toxicity of the soil contaminant. That's interesting. So I, I'm assuming they're, are they very sensitive to various toxins? Yes. So there's a, there's a standard um, microorganism for measuring toxicity of, of soil contaminants. Um, earthworms are another standard organism, but these columbula are really easy to grow. So um, a lot of labs use them as kind of the first line for screening for a toxic chemical. Now, I'm not really interested in the toxicity. I'm interested in, you know, how they interact with these bacteria. So I want to get the bacteria out and study their genes. I'm curious as to how, how do I put this? Uh, let's just say that you have, in, in your case, let's just say you have a Petri dish and you have a colony of springtails growing and, and reproducing on the Petri dish. Do you get more reproduction by dividing that and then seeding new Petri dishes than you would just letting them stay in one area? Because, well, my question is, I have three uh, colonies set up in my home, and they never seem to outnumber the space inside of that container, meaning it's not like I open up one day and it's overflowing with springtails. What Do they have any idea in terms of uh, how much space a certain population can occupy? Like, do they limit their breeding once they've maxed out an area, or do they just kind of reproduce regardless of that? You know, they probably, I don't know for sure, but I would guess they're density dependent, that they would limit their breeding. But these columbula, um, they they lay communal egg masses. So you get 
individual columbula will pile their eggs in a group. So you get egg masses with hundreds of eggs. And within 10 days, those are going to hatch. And eventually, they're going to start burrowing into the auger and eating it. So, so there'll be so many columbula in the dish that they actually eat up their substrate. So you have to split them out to keep them, you know, keep them going. There's just too many of them. And it's probably because they're parthenogenetic. They don't, you know, if you have a, this is called, uh, um, the species is Falsomia candida. It's a, it's a white columbula. Um, it has no eyes. It has no color or any kind of morphology. It's, you know, kind of a, a boring little columbula, but um, it grows like crazy. And the parthenogenesis Parthenogenesis allows it to kind of colonize just about anywhere, so it's it's called a tramp species in in the um, it, it it gets into potting soil, and you can start a columbula colony just by, you know, it's it's in your flower pot, and and you've got these little white critters, and um, you can just turn them into a, a laboratory colony. That was my first experience, was actually accidental. I, Before I got into keeping dart frogs and whatnot, I, I kept tree frogs, and I kept a, a few different species of salamander in back when you could. And I used cypress mulch as a substrate. It was, it was inexpensive. It didn't rot. It didn't mold. And I'm assuming I had some native species that had piggybacked its way in on the substrate, and I came into my, my, my room one day and I was looking at a couple of different animals, my, my pixie frog and my fire salamanders in particular. And they had what I found out later were springtails on their fecal matter, on their, on their, their waist. And originally sure. I, I kind of panicked and I thought to myself, I was like, well, you know, what is this? Because at the time it was more conventional to keep things very, very sterile. And I just left them there. I was like, all right, they're not bothering the animals. They seem to be cleaning up the waste. I said, I'm just going to, I'm just going to leave them. Could you realistically find springtails anywhere and then have that, like, could you source wild springtails as well? That I don't know. Um, if, if they're not parthenogenetic, you've, you've got the mating problem. Um, I had a bunch, uh, a different species that came in with some, what do you call those, um, um, isopods, zebra, zebra something, Tell me what they are. Little crustaceans that you use in vivaria. Yes. And somebody gave me a collection of these isopods, and with them were columbula of a different species from what I grow. And those columbula eventually died out. So there was something about the way I was keeping them that wasn't ideal. Uh, the isopods are doing just fine, but they've lost their their columbula partners. Um, but in nature, sometimes you see huge aggregations of columbula for no reason that anyone quite understands. Um, I've seen them in Connecticut under rhododendron trees, for instance. You know, like a couple square yards of just masses of columbula. 
but it's it's a very unpredictable thing. So I don't think people have a grip on how to, you know, culture these things, except for this this species that's used in toxicology. You can find them like when you collect mushrooms, edible mushrooms. There's often calambula on the mushrooms. Um, or looking under bark for spiders or something, you'll you'll see calambula. Um, on the ponds in the spring, you'll see them. But um, yeah, I haven't tried to grow those wild ones. Do they have a preference for a certain diet? I, I know that you use yeast, and a lot of us use like similar products. They seem to have at least some association with 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 uh, fungi. Do they have yes. a preference for it? Yes, they the yeast are in fact a, a unicellular fungus. So yeast is an easy form of fungus to to use. But if you just sprinkle yeast on these petri dishes, you will get fungal contaminants growing. And yeah, they like that. They like a little protein. I've seen them aggregating on um, like a dead fly in a terrarium. They they uh, they'll eat they'll scavenge. Um, Fungus, um, detritus, um, yeah. Do you have any idea, and this is kind of an odd question, but do you have any idea how many springtail individuals it might take to effectively clean up a, a certain amount of waste? And like, Let me just put this into context. The majority of us keep vivariums that are anywhere from two foot by two foot up to the sky is the limit. I mean, I have a friend who keeps a 300-gallon vivarium. Is is there a way for them to maximize their environment in such a way that they're breaking down more waste than can be produced, like as if it was a mini ecosystem? I suspect you could do that. Um, it would depend on how many frogs or whatever you've got in there producing the waste. I got it. Some, I mean, some of mine make a make a tremendous amount of waste, and some don't. <laughs> yeah, so so you got a balance going on there. Um, I've never gotten a perfect ecosystem going. So what I grow for my frogs is not columbula. I grow the um, psychotids. Um, psychotid. It's a, people call them drain flies. They look like a little moth. Uh, they're very easy to grow, and unlike mosquitoes, they don't need a blood meal. So I just throw in, I, I, <laughs> you can collect them in outhouses in the fall. And I collect a bunch of them, and I just put them in my tanks. And I have a uh, a pan of water, polluted water. I throw in um, rabbit chow or whatever, and uh, these guys just reproduce. They've been going for quite a long time. And then my tree frogs will hang out and eat them, which saves me the trouble of catching bugs for the frogs. It's a it's a good idea. I'll, I'll tell you, I I worked with sewage for fourteen years, so I was no stranger to, to drain flies, and it was ah, one of okay. the yeah, <laughs> it was one of the biggest nuisances. And I I would tell people, I'd say, look, I, I can't do anything for you if they're if they're here, they're here. 
and um, it was we would actually <laughs> have kind of <laughs> kind of rough altercations because the exterminators generally wouldn't wouldn't touch them because they were just so resilient against any kind of treatment, and then it, it, it I mean they they live in sewage. And, right. and I would, people would say, well, you have to come in and have this. I'm like, there's nothing I could do. You know, would you take the exterminator? Oh, the exterminator told me to call you. Uh, just for a visual <laughs> though, just for you and everyone else. And I, I'm, I'm only going to share this story because we are on the topic of drain flies. Uh, up the block from where I used to work, we did cesspool pumping. And there was an issue where they had like four or five cesspools just fill up and overflow into a, an asphalt parking lot. And it was like, it was like the middle of summer. It was like 90 degrees. And oh I, sh- <laughs> I showed up with, with one of the pump truck drivers to give him a hand. And the surface of the water was moving like, um, yes. like little waves. And when we pulled in, it must have been billions and billions of drain flies just took flight, circled around in the air like you'd see pigeons do. And then mm-hmm. land. It was one of the most horrific sights I'd ever seen. Yeah, they're pretty amazing. And they're beautiful under the scope. If you look at them with a microscope, they're really pretty. What about forehead flies? I know that's kind of a, a generic term that probably applies to many species, but... Yeah, I've had forids, um mainly hanging out with cockroaches and crickets. Um, but I've not succeeded in maintaining them for any length of time. Are they something that would kind of be self-limiting? Because I know a lot of people will bring in plants from outside and they'll have forward flies living in the soil and they'll kind of end up invading a vivarium and then we'll all sort of panic for a while. The The theory in the hobby was that they were outcompeted by other things like springtails. But, I mean, you're the expert. You What do you think about that theory? Oh, gosh. I don't know. I I couldn't tell you. Springtails can be outcompeted by mites, which are even tinier. Now, how would mites make their way? And we're talking about mites that would be in in soil, or yeah, they're kind of all over. There, I I've picked up mites. Oh gosh, yeah, I don't know where they come from. Uh, a lot of insects are intermediate hosts for mites. And I suspect, you know, they're p- probably quite common in insect colonies, crickets or whatever. Um, you know, they're so tiny, you wouldn't notice them unless unless they become really, you know, a problem. Um, sometimes I see mites in my mosquito colonies. And I don't worry about it because there's not many of them. but. Um, I once had an incubator that was, was just a massive infection of mites. We have issues with uh, grain mites when we, the majority of us in, in the dar frog, not so much the tree frog keepers, but uh, we culture flightless fruit flies as the primary feeder for our dart frogs or other glass frogs mm-hmm. and even small geckos and whatnot. And grain mites are always like the, the the bane of our existence because you'll get a nice culture going, and as soon as it's producing, you get these little tan little buggers crawling around, and then they you yep. make the make the whole thing a mess. Yep, and that's part of what's killing the the honeybees. There's a, a mite 
infestation that's come over from Europe. And um, it's, it's spreading viruses in the honeybee population. Is that contributing to, I mean, I know it's kind of immediate term. I'm sure there's more to it than that, but um, the colony collapse? Yeah, that's part of the colony collapse um, problem. Really? Is that, yeah. uh, there's, by me, there is a, uh, there's a, it's, it's an area that's almost like a recreation of uh, an 1850s village. The, the area I live in on Long Island uh, was, was developed and settled around the 1850s. They had a bee colony there. And uh, after a while, the, the beekeeper ended up packing up and, and leaving. I don't know if it was just that the colony had had died off or disappeared. Uh, in terms of, of colony collapse, how bad is that? Because I hear news stories around it, but I really don't know anybody who's, who's in the field that actively works with them. It's pretty serious. Um, we no longer see wild honeybee colonies in nature. And what's happening with the, the domesticated bees is there's, there's more and more commercial beekeeping where they pile the hives onto trucks and move them throughout the country to pollinate different crops as they come into season. So like a lot of bees get shipped out to California to pollinate the almonds, and then they come back and pollinate cranberries or whatever. Um, and during this um, shipping of bees, they're maintained on a diet of high fructose corn syrup, which is not really good for them. It's sort of like humans. Uh, we don't do well on, on high sugars either. So anyway, part of the problem is the way we're managing the bees. And part of it is loss of habitat for them to have their own wild colonies and uh, you know, a lot of different things that humans are doing to interfere with with honeybees, which are not native to the United States. They were they're imported from Europe. So our bees uh, are colonized bees. Actually, uh, are I think they came from Italy or that part of the Mediterranean area. So bees are an introduced species to begin with. Honeybees are an introduced species. And um, we we kind of seen what's happening when you overmanage um, a species of insect that could be considered beneficial. Yeah, I, I can connect you with a bee person, but I don't know a lot about bees. Yeah, I've always been I've always been fascinated on, about them. And the the piece of property that I work on, we usually have a swarm maybe like once a year, and these honeybees will just show up in one part of the building. They, they they congregate and they're a nuisance for like three days and then all of a sudden they're just gone. Yeah, they they have a, a behavioral process where they kind of identify a new place to hang out and uh, the, the swarming is part of that behavior for finding a new um, nesting site. Yeah, we have a beekeeper in the area that we... we I mean, part, uh -huh. part, of the, part of my job is, is in maintaining the building, obviously, is dealing with stuff like that and... I, right. I always get it. Call the beekeeper. Call the beekeeper. And I, I call her up usually at the same time every year. And I, I, I think her name's Katie. I say, Katie, look, uh, we got the bees. She goes, call me back in three days. If they're still there, I'll come out. And then three days later, they're all gone. <laughs> so I call her back and I say, they're gone. She said, yeah, I thought that was going to happen. I said, okay. But yeah, it's, it's wild how sophisticated they are. 
Yeah, and they will they will nest in houses or you know barns or you know tree holes. But the chance of finding these wild colonies is really has really dropped a lot in the last fifty years. That's interesting. I know that from what I understand, New York City actually has a beekeeper on the city payroll to uh, to deal with problem oh. hives. Yeah, isn't that crazy? You would ne- I never would have expected that. But they have a bee- beekeeper who I believe is on call like twenty four seven for uh, bee related issues. That's interesting. Yeah. You know, I, I, just to get back to the springtails, I, I was curious about things. I mean, you mentioned the mites being a problem and um, and out-competing them and causing issues. Are there any organisms that actively prey on springtails? Because I've heard from people that certain uh, nematodes, for example, might feed on springtails to the point where they might actually decimate springtail colonies within a vivarium. In your observations, have you seen any organisms that actively prey on them? Not really. Um, I've seen disease in my lab colonies periodically. And I think that has to do with too much humidity. Um, nematodes, yeah, I would I would suspect that nematodes could attack springtails. I know mites will eat the eggs. So mites can be a problem. Okay, what else? I've tried feeding the springtails to baby mantids, but the mantids don't seem to do well on them. Why do you think that is? Could be they don't taste good. It could be there's you know they might have something. Some they might be toxic to another insect. Who knows? You know. Hmm, that's interesting. You you know you'd mentioned before that you had frogs and I apologize for not getting into that a little bit more so but what what species of frogs are you keeping? Um, well in Minnesota we've got about five species and um, I mostly like the tree frogs the gray tree frogs but I've had I I've had a, I have a swimming pool that I turned into a frog pond. And so all the species that live here have eventually found the pond and they breed there. So, you know, I've got the chorus frogs and the peepers and the, you know, the hyla, the um, the tree frogs. What's next? Oh, wood frogs are first. Um, yeah, we've got five or six species and they all kind of live in my pool. <laughs> so, so basically the problem is... Um, they they go in this boom and bust phase where there's just so many tadpoles they run out of food so so there's there's this duckweed that grows on top of the pond and some years they just eat everything and you know <laughs> they 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 don't make it because there's just not enough food for them it's amazing how ravenous tadpoles can be like i've i i was told i was talking to a listener earlier about uh one of my grow out bins so i've got a i've got like a, a lot of t- i mean dart frogs don't produce these massive clutches the way some of the explosive breeders do obviously but i've got this rubbermaid container that i'm letting my tadpoles grow out in and the amount of food that they eat is astronomical yeah yeah 
especially when they're getting big. They they just and I once tried to feed a tadpole to my angelfish, and that was a mistake. Uh, I think uh, the hyla, at least the tree frog tadpoles, are they do produce a toxin, and uh, the angelfish died. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. That's wild. Before you mentioned moisture, and many of us, we, I mean, the the one the, the biggest problem with keeping a a moist, humid environment, especially for dart frogs and many species of tree frogs, and and the majority of of, of amphibian species that are kept in captivity is obviously the high moisture and the high humidity that often goes along, not with every species, but often goes along with maintaining the vivarium. I guess, hence the, the attraction to, to springtails. Can springtails exist in an, in an arid environment that is very, very low in moisture? I mean, would that be possible? Because I've, I've had conversations with certain people about wanting to incorporate springtails into dry types of enclosures, and I always tell them, I don't think that's really going to work because your springtails are going to kind of congregate around whatever water source there is there, and once that dissipates, they're not going to hang around anymore. What are your thoughts on that? I agree with you. I I have never seen um, springtails in dry environments. And in my experience, they will congregate even on the water surface. Um, they they have a structure on the on the underneath of their abdomen that is called a colophore. And that's why we call them columbola. It's a little sort of, um, it looks like a little suction cup. And the purpose of that is to um, take up moisture. So they do, they do need a fair bit of moisture. And they, you know, when they dry out, they will tend to make um, uh, glycerol and other sugars in their blood, which kind of help them to attract moisture from the environment, from the air into their bodies. So they're kind of, they want to be moist. Well, we're kind of at the end. And um, I'm, it's funny because I always say this, every episode, my, at the end of the episode, I'm always filled with, my head's always filled with more questions than, uh, than I had started out with. But if, if you wanted to give someone advice who wanted to just keep springtails, I guess, I guess you could use the term recreationally or just, or just for fun, what advice would you give that person? Gosh, there's there's so little known about springtails. I mean, um, in the entomology world, there's there's a little bit of literature, but not a lot. There's a lot we don't know. Um, I guess it would be fun to learn how to breed the ones that we can't yet grow in captivity. I'd be up for that. Yeah, <laughs> I'd like I'd 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 enjoy that. Getting a hold of some and getting them to reproduce. There, there's so many insects out there that we really don't have a grip on. Um, yeah, springtails. Well, I don't know. Well, is there anything else that um, I mean? If if any of the listeners wanted to find out more about your work and some of your research, where would you uh, where would you recommend they start looking? 
Well, they could email me. Um, I have some publications on my own work with Springtails, including a um, description of how I grow them, which, you know, if someone wanted to just mass produce Springtails for, um, to feed something else, um, these auger plates that I use would, would do the trick. Um, but yeah, um, probably if you Googled Columbula and uh, my name, Ann Fallon, you'd probably come up with some of those papers. Um, I'm at the University of Minnesota, so um, I, I'd be happy to answer emails. Excellent, because there's always there's. It's amazing how much of a, of a thirst for knowledge there is when it comes to this types of stuff. And the it's funny because yeah. the auger plates I never would have thought of in a million years. That's that's really interesting. Well, I only thought of them because I've I've worked with bacteria on auger plates, and you know, to me they're just big bacteria. But I I use them in my work. Uh, there's a problem where people, it's called delusory parasitosis, where where people think they're infested with insects. Um, and I use the springtails. I, I bring these people into my lab and I show them under a microscope what is an insect. What is a really tiny insect and what does it look for? What does it look like? You know, structures, legs and whatnot. Because these people will bring in samples of things that they think are bugs. But when you look at them with a microscope, they're not bugs. And I kind of use the springtails as kind of an educational tool to teach people, you know, what, what a real bug looks like. And I've had different successes with different people. Um, some people actually will listen to me and, you know, they'll let their, their so-called bugs grow up and they realize they're not bugs and other people just never can accept that there are no bugs and everything in between but springtails are useful for that because they're real tiny and um you can show people in a microscope what they look like that's incredible you actually have people come into the that's amazing it, it's a, it's a medical issue um and and doctors are not really trained to study bugs you know um and people have found out about me, and uh, they'll they'll come in, and it, it's kind of tricky because you know it is a it's it's a psychiatric condition, and you don't want to insult anybody, but at the same time you want to educate them. You want to take away that fear that they're infested with something that's going to hurt them. And basically, I try to tell them, you know, if they don't believe me, if they don't, if they continue to believe that they're infested, I say, well, you know, it's not going to hurt you, whatever it is. And sometimes they can relax to the point where, you know, it, it, the problem is less. Um, but that's that's kind of one of the things I use my Columbula for is education. That's really thinking outside the box. I, I like stuff like that. I, I started off. I mean, people know I'm, I'm kind of a big arachno arachnophile. I, I have a few tarantulas, but for the longest time, I was I was terrified of spiders. I I hated them, and then once I started to look at them, 
in a way that I appreciated them almost aesthetically. I mean, there's just like Chromatopelma um, sanio pubis. It's a, it's a blue and kind of like a reddish rump tar- uh, tarantula. And I saw a picture of one. I thought, oh, that's incredible. And then the more I kind of appreciated them for, for what they are and then their inherent beauty and function and whatnot, then I stopped being afraid of them. I mean, I still don't like picking sp- spiders up, but... It was definitely therapeutic for me. I mean, I'm not terrified of them the way I was in the past. Yeah, a lot of people have spider fears. And uh, I would pick up any bug, but I wouldn't pick up a spider. So I decided to study all this. And, you know, those golden garden spiders out east, you probably have seen them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I collect. I read about them, and I discovered they're not poisonous. And I collected them and put them on ice and glued their mouth parts together so they couldn't bite me. <laughs> and I just, I just handled them to the point where I got comfortable with them, and that cured me of, of being afraid of spiders. But you know, but fear of bugs is kind of a. I don't know. It must be kind of something we're born with. Yeah, I feel like it it would serve some innate need at the very least not to be I mean think about how much damage mosquitoes do and 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 ticks. Uh, I'm I'm I I hate ticks. I'll be I'll be honest. With you. I think I hate them more than I hate mosquitoes cuz here on Long Island you can't walk in you can't walk into your own house without getting uh, covered with ticks, but yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean even I have I have a colony of uh, of dubia roaches. And a lot of us mm-hmm. also, we keep breeding colonies of different roaches. Um, I think, what is it, Dubia blaptica, I think is the scientific name. And they just do very well. Then actually, they, they, people, other parts, if you're listening in Florida, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, I know you guys can't keep them down there. In other parts of the country, they're they're prohibited. But, I mean, even that, just I have this massive aquarium that's teeming with cockroaches, and it doesn't seem to bother me. And thankfully, it doesn't bother anyone in my house either, so... Yeah, I, I, I think, well, crickets are the easiest to grow, but they too. There's a cricket paralysis virus that's out there. And there's a, there's a new species of cricket they've got in. Is it the banded cricket? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. It's supposed to be, I haven't gotten any yet, but it's supposed to be less um, susceptible to virus. I only feed those now. I've been using them for quite a few years because in the in the cricket market we've had we've definitely seen the the brunt of that and buying the domestic cricket they're usually dead after like a week like once one dies you get that ammonia smell and then they all crash the banded crickets i've had them for like six or eight weeks at a time with minimal care and they seem to do very very well they're my my preferred feeder for my larger frogs Hmm. do you breed them no i don't i i order them uh i just order them online Oh, okay. But I know of co- there's quite a few vendors who do work with them. Whether they breed them on site, I, I don't know. My suspicion is, I mean, I know that there's a few big cricket farms in the country, but my suspicion is I think maybe like two or three major entities breed them and probably wholesale them to, to vendors. That's my theory. Yes, yes. There's a place called Flucker's Cricket Farm. And if you buy them, they're very cheap. You know, and I'm sure pet stores buy them and split them out and, and um, you know, sell, resell them. 
but um, we buy them for the laboratories for for the students to dissect crickets, and you know they're che they're cheap and easy, but they're pretty easy to breed too. Yeah, I don't know anybody who I've heard people try. I, there's, there's a couple of common feeders, but just I mean for us, it's just easier to just buy i mean yeah. i'll buy like two thousand at a clip i'll buy like a thousand eighth inch and a thousand quarter inch bandits and then i'm yep. set for like for my collection at least for like two months but the the, the cricket virus can you i mean i i, I know we're, it's okay we can get into overtime but can you tell us a little bit about that too because it's something i'd also always been curious about well i don't know much about it um it's an rna virus um, sort of related to a lot of the other insect viruses. And it, oh gosh, you know, okay, so when I see a sick cricket, I, I don't usually actually identify the virus that it has. But this cricket paralysis virus is one of the big ones that um, it, it just wipes out the colony. So I, I breed them, so I, I grow them, so I, I Basically, I need males and females. I produce the eggs and then grow them up. And the last batch of crickets I got from a pet store, they, they had this really weird, they were just edgy. They were kind of um, grooming themselves and acting really strange. And they all died. They, they would not establish a colony. And I went back to that same pet store and I got to see their crickets and most of them were dead. So I, I think whoever, you know, whoever they're getting their crickets from is, is probably um, they're contaminated with this virus. And someday if I live long enough, I'll figure out what this virus is. But, you know, there's not a lot of um, interest in curing insect diseases. So a lot of people actually use viruses to kill caterpillars, but no one wants to cure their sick caterpillars of the virus. So, yeah. I can tell you, though, the cricket industry is a multi-million dollar industry. I mean, oh, yeah. everyone with everything from a, a, dart frog, a dart frog up to a monitor at some point is feeding something crickets. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I did my thesis on crickets. Um they're they're pretty interesting, and people eat crickets too. Yeah, I haven't tried personally, but I know I've seen I've seen canned crickets and canned grasshoppers available from time to time. Yeah, yeah, they're pre they're pretty they're okay. I mean, <laughs> um, you know they 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 do produce more protein than cows, so there's a future there, but. Um, yeah, the legs are a little crunchy. Uh, it maybe I could see it being a hard sell, but who knows? Yeah. <laughs> well, you can make it into batter like clam fritters, and and deep fry them. I'm picturing they're that not, now. They're not bad. Yeah, <laughs> I, I I would just do it and not not tell my wife and kids what it is. <laughs> <laughs> Well, listen, Anne, it's been a real pleasure having you on. And um, again, I, I, we, I could go on and on and on. I know we're kind of in overtime, but I really want to thank you again for coming on the show and shedding light on a topic that's kind of been a little bit of a mystery to many of us. So uh, again, I want to thank you again, and maybe we'll get together and do a cricket episode at some point in the future, because I know a lot of the listeners are probably going to be interested in that as well. Okay. 
Sounds good. Excellent. All right. I want to thank everyone for listening and checking this episode out. It's It's been real fun. And uh, like I said, I like to switch the content up a little bit. I know Springtails is a really popular topic among everyone. So I hope you guys enjoyed it. Catch up with you again soon. <laughs>